is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The crisis in India, going from bad to worse. Country's death toll now 200,000, but they say it's probably a lot higher than that. Hospitals and other medical facilities being overwhelmed, as are the crematoriums. Also, shortage of oxygen and other crucial supplies. We'll get into what the global community is doing to try and help. Is it good to crack open a beer or mix a cocktail to celebrate your vaccine shot? We'll talk to a doctor who can answer the question about if alcohol can ruin the COVID vaccine. The pandemic will end one day, but the virus, it's going to stick around. Let's start with the crisis in India. Dr. Prabhat Jha is a professor of global health at the University of Toronto, also an epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. Dr. Can you explain for people here who think it's awful in India, but okay in the U.S., why it might not always be okay here? Well, the virus is a global problem and it needs a global solution. And uh, I think the India tragedy that's unfolding teaches us a few things. One, that any country that thinks, well, they, uh, they'll have one wave and then after that they won't have a recurrence, we're really mistaken. That's what happened in India. They had a big wave in in um, September and it came down and then lots of Indians thought were vaccinated on the cheap because the infection was widespread and turns out that it was completely wrong. A new variant that is more infectious really has bit India hard. But this has global implications, as you say. First, if India's uh, scenario doesn't improve, then it's a big producer of vaccines. So many parts of the world, not necessarily the U.S., but Africa, Latin America won't necessarily get their vaccines because they won't let it get exported. The second is uh, we know that if you've got uncontrolled epidemics, then they do create the conditions for uh, variants. And so far, the vaccines that are used in North America seem to work pretty well against most of the variants, but there might be something further along that is uh, more resistant. So our vaccinations may not be as effective. And then more broadly, you, you can't imagine a world where we're thinking everything is, the U.S. is growing economically, uh, but a sixth of it is in a really terrible state uh, and the country is closed. That just creates the kind of conditions, instability conditions, uh, civil strife that eventually breeds terrorism, which creates global instability. So we have to have a global solution, and India is part of that. What is being done to try and help them? I know we're going to try and send some vaccines there, but the speed of vaccinations, it has to ramp up somehow. That's right. So, I mean, they're currently vaccinating at uh, about 0.2% of the population per day. And by contrast, in Canada we, we and the, in the U.S., you've got about 1% of the population, or the U.S. actually was better than that. It was about 2% of the population per day. So they're well short of the pace that you need. Um, and so by June, when we hope this current wave is over, and there's some signs now from Bombay and from Delhi that it might be peaking. And so the hope is this current wave will be over by June. Only about uh, at the current progress, only 20 percent of Indians would have got a vaccine. And that's not enough to ward off another wave. So it means some hard choices. They have to expand vaccination. 
But I think what also India will need to do is to get much better data, because now there's suggestions that if you target vaccines to hotspots, to the highest risk and to hotspot neighborhoods, you get better bang for the for the vaccine. Uh, but for that, you need a lot better data on wh- where the infections, where the deaths and so forth. So it's really a tough scenario for the le- next few months. Uh, and in India, right now, people are just on their own. They're fighting for trying to get oxygen, trying to keep their sick relatives from not having to go to the hospital because there really are no hospital beds in some of the in some of the cities and that misery i'm very sad to say will continue for the next uh, 2 to 3 weeks and then hopefully if the signs are accurate it will get better brazil of course has been another hot spot do we know what progress if any they're making there because the same issues or some of the same issues that could impact the rest of the world exist in Brazil. That's right. And uh, Brazil is an example where uh, you you got all the conditions for really widespread infection. You got too many people saying, oh, well, because some of us have been infected now, we've got natural immunity, so we don't need the vaccine. You had an absolutely irresponsible uh, and I would almost argue criminal leadership by the the president of Brazil, not wearing masks and sending all the signals that to not take the virus seriously. And all of that have created conditions where Brazil is really affected. Now, interestingly, India and Brazil are very similar in lots of ways, uh, widespread infection, but the deaths in Brazil have been noticeably higher than in India for reasons we don't uh, still understand. Um, and But uh, the challenge for Brazil remains the same. They will need better vaccine uh, supply. They need to be able to rely not just on the, on the Chinese uh, vaccine, which is not as effective as the vaccines we use here, but so they need access to the most effective vaccines um, in Brazil. Um, and you could just imagine, can you imagine uh, a North America where Brazil became a failed state, what that would mean for security, for civil unrest, for huge numbers of people flooding uh, all the way up to the U.S. borders. We just do not want to be in a world where you have that degree of instability and strife. It's not good for Americans and it's not good for the world. Dr. Prabhat Jha, Professor of Global Health, University of Toronto, Epidemiologist, Unity Health, Toronto. Doctor, thanks. All right, so you got your vaccine shot, you're excited, you want to celebrate by having maybe a drink or two or three or, you know, where, several. Where do we cut you off? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but will the alcohol ruin the effects of the vaccine? Is it okay? Dr. Anita Gorwara, family medicine physician, director of the urgent care, Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. So, doctor, I got a shot. I feel good. Can I have a drink? Yes, absolutely. Wonderful news because I have and one. celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> so pop pop that cork now, <laughs> Mike. Uh, yeah. Why does this even come up though? Was there any question? Because I hadn't heard of this before. Uh, was there a concern that alcohol somehow would interfere with the COVID vaccines? I think there was concerns about a lot of things that would interfere with the uh, the COVID vaccines, uh, you know, from Tylenol to to alcohol, and so. 
We were worried about whether your body would be able to mount a full immune response um, and didn't want to give any chance for your body not to do that. So it was kind of a little restrictive there initially. But, um, you know, once now we've gotten more studies uh, that have come out and there seems to be really very little that can interfere with you gaining immunity from those vaccines. So what I was told was, yes, you may have a drink, you may not have three drinks. So at what point does alcohol really actually start to interfere with your immune system if it does? Well, uh, you know, everybody's body metabolizes alcohol um, differently. Um, for I mean, if you were going to say population across the board, it would probably be right about at the second drink. Um, if you went from two to three, uh, you could maybe, um, you know, suppress your immune system and uh, not have as good a response. But even that, I, I would think it, it with the second dose, your immunity is already so high after the first dose that uh, having a, a couple of drinks or even three drinks after the, the, the second dose, you're, you're, you'd be fine. I wonder how good, does it matter the quality of the champagne? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> How strong is your drink? Yeah, you you did tick off, uh, tick off something in passing about uh, the earlier concerns, not just about alcohol, but uh, Tylenol. I think Advil was another one. Uh, have have most of those concerns been put to rest? Most have been put to rest. The only thing that's really been um, uh, been an issue is the the, the use of steroids. Um, and we've, we've had to turn a couple of patients away that, uh, were given steroids, uh, right before their vaccine. And that's the only one that has continued to remain that if you are on steroids, I mean, you can still get the vaccine, uh, but we're not sure about what kind of a response your body's going to have to it. And what happens after, uh, can they take the steroids afterwards? If they, well, if they absolutely need to, Yes. We but were trying on... to refrain. The only reason you would put us, the only time we were using steroids after the vaccine was if you had an allergic reaction, or we did see a lot of it with uh, Moderna and women who used fillers, uh, Restylane, et cetera, in their face, they would have an uh, allergic reaction in their face where it would, it would blow up. And then we would use the steroids to help suppress that. Hmm. When we were on the, uh, the, the painkiller thing, going back and forth of, of few weeks or a few months ago, I don't know, uh, they were saying, you know, just do it afterwards if you need to. Don't try to preempt this. Is that still the same kind of idea same if you're thing. worried about side effects? You know, wait yeah. until they actually show up. Don't pop a pill and then go in. Absolutely. Because most times, you know, you're, you're, first of all, what's the side effect? And secondly, how severe is it? Is, is it something you cannot tolerate? Or is it something that, you know, really needs to be treated? And that's what I've told patients, um, you know, you, especially with the COVID arm that we saw a lot of it a lot of after the Moderna vaccine was, you know, the redness that developed. Okay. Does it need to be treated? Is it bothering you at any, you know, in any way, shape or form with itching, redness, swelling? Uh, Only then would I suggest, um, you know, taking some Benadryl or a steroid taper. Well, and and you, you, since you brought up things like uh, steroids and prednisone, people who take, uh, because they have, I guess, arthritis, whatever, steroids on a regular basis, is there a time limit uh, or time period when after the vaccination they can go back to it? Uh, well, generally two weeks. But a lot of the a lot of patients who are on chronic steroids is usually through their, their rheumatologists. Most rheumatologists see the dose would be so low if you're on chronic steroids 
that it would not necessarily interfere. And I've not had a single patient who's been on chronic steroids uh, been told not to get the vaccination. Dr. Anita Gorwara, family medicine physician, director of the Urgent Care, Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. Coming up after this short break, we could be stuck with COVID forever. COVID-19 may never go away. Yes, the pandemic will eventually end, but the virus might be with us for a long, long time. KYW's Matt Leon talks to Drexel University epidemiologist Neil Goldstein, who's written that the virus will be endemic and we'll just have to learn to live with it. You know, had we had this conversation, um, gosh, a year ago, I don't know that we would have this same um, viewpoint on it. For example, you know, if we go back to the original SARS um, outbreak that happened uh, early in the, in the 2000s, that was a virus, a novel virus that essentially extinguished itself in the population. And, and that means that we don't have any kind of seasonally circulating the, the, the coronavirus that caused that original SARS. But this time what happened was, you know, either through characteristics of the virus itself or the, or the lack of ability for us to really contain it early on, We've had a virus that is propagated throughout the entire world. And as such, you know, just naturally with what a virus does, it evolves over time, it mutates. And, you know, it's probably a virus that's going to be here to stay. The good news, though, surrounding that is that we have a very robust public health system that knows exactly how to deal with ongoing uh, viral respiratory pathogens here. So, yes, I do think it's something that we will live with for um, for the near future, absolutely, and, and probably for a long time to come. It's just kind of a seasonally circulating sickness that we have to deal with. Yeah, to that point, so it would be something that would we see a point down the road where we talk about flu season, where we would talk about COVID season? I think that is the, the perfect um, uh, analogy for this, essentially, just like we have our flu vaccination campaigns that happen every fall and we have increased um, surveillance that happens as part of flu season with influenza-like illness. We're seeing the same thing with coronavirus, right? We see coronavirus-like illness. We see vaccination campaigns that will probably require a booster shot. Now, whether that's due to uh, your immunity waning over time or, or, or it's due to just kind of... Um, what we call immune escape or as variants emerge that may require, you know, slightly tweaked vaccination, we'll probably see that happen on an annual basis, very much similar to the flu program. And in fact, that's, you know, that's because we have this flu program. That's why we can potentially roll the coronavirus program into that and really just have kind of a single seasonal viral respiratory, you know, shot and, and surveillance program that deals with both illnesses. We've talked a lot you and I have talked a lot, and I think America at large has talked a lot and focused on the vaccines and obviously the the excitement there. How much progress have we made in the therapy world? Because that was a focus early, but I think it kind of got swallowed up by the tidal wave of excitement about vaccines. So if we're talking about something that's going to be kind of hanging around, where are we on therapy and treatments and stuff like that? And I think a lot of what we're talking about right now, that is lower mortality, fewer hospitalizations, better outcomes, is because of the ability of the of healthcare providers to kind of figure out how to treat and manage this this illness. You know, very early on in the pandemic when it was brand new and, and there was just a lot of uncertainty about is this going to work better, is this going to work better? 
a lot of that just through the nature of how science progresses and how healthcare progresses. Uh, the the um, a lot of that has just kind of um, I'm going to use the word figured itself out, but that's not quite the the way that I really want to put it. It's just we figured out what works. The evidence has has evolved, and so that puts the healthcare provider and healthcare system in a much much better position today than it was six months ago, than it was a year ago. So I, I expect that to continue to evolve, and you know overall mortality will will go down, and and hospitalizations and serious outcomes hopefully also will go down. What would the concern if it's something that pops up? We've heard so much about variants over the last six months or so. If it's hanging around, is there concern of a variant that really becomes troublesome, or would it not? Because it wouldn't be the wide wouldn't be widely circulating. Is it not as concerning? Some of this is still to be determined, but I want to be clear about the, the variant part of this. I think that was something when the, when the when when we were focusing on it in the news, it sounds super scary, right? This is a variant. We you know whatever our vaccine is going to look like, but we have to be clear. This is just the way that organisms evolve and adapt over time. There will always be mutations that happen anytime organisms reproduce at at the scale that we're talking about here. The over overwhelming majority of those mutations, though, result in a virus that's essentially no longer capable of infecting people. Every time, you know, every every um, every rare instance, one of these um, mutations slips out that maybe may may give a little bit better um, uh, ability of this virus to to reproduce or or to uh, to escape the immune system. And that's just a not natural consequence. So because we're dealing with the scales that we're dealing with the pandemic and worldwide outbreak, these variants happen. They're, they're expected to happen. They were known to, to, to happen. The vaccines that we're seeing so far, and this is, now we're getting into kind of what we know and, and still what we need to figure out. The vaccines that we have right now seem to do a decent job. Now, that's depending on a few different um, uh few different things that, you know, depending if we want to go, go down that road, we can, but they seem to do an overall decent job with the majority of the variants that we've seen right now. The evidence is still evolving with that. And sure, it's possible that another variant could emerge in the population that requires a, a tweaked vaccine or some kind of um, uh, tweaked response to it. But what we're seeing right now is despite the variants, we still are optimistic about the ability of our vaccination program and our response in public health to really to 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 kind of crush the the majority of the pandemic and transform this into a kind of a seasonally circulating illness that we deal with. How much have we learned? And you mentioned SARS. Uh, how much have we learned from previous go arounds with stuff like HIV, Zika? That, and I'm not comparing the viruses themselves, but just how we kind of deal with something that's kind of always around. And I think those are appropriate diseases to compare this against because they kind of emerged at a population level at specific points in time. And we didn't really have much knowledge about them beforehand, whether it was the original SARS coronavirus, whether it was Zika, whether it was HIV. So those made a huge splash when we learned about them and generated a lot of fear, a lot of, unfortunately, stigma associated with those, with those infections. But also, these are things that we, as you said, that we, we live with now, right? And that we've figured out what the treatments, how to prevent them, what treatments uh, work, what treatments don't work. 
and how to um, essentially evolve our public health system to deal with them on an ongoing basis. So even though we still have Zika out there and we still have HIV out there, I, I, you know, I, I think that the, the state of the science and the state of public health and, and the state of clinical medicine has turned those conditions into very manageable conditions that we can deal with. And that's kind of where we're seeing the progression with SARS-CoV-2 here. We're seeing it progress into something that, that is manageable, that we, that we do know a little bit uh, something about, that we do have preventive measures in there. We've gone over how many colleges are requiring students and staff to be vaccinated. It turns out that they can make those mandates. But what about the opposite? Well, a private school in Miami says it won't hire anyone who has received a COVID-19 vaccine. Setner Academy is citing concerns that the vaccine might not be safe. It says it's in the, and I'm quoting now, the best interests of the children to protect them from the unknown implications of being in close proximity for the entire day with a teacher who has very recently taken the COVID-19 injection. Well, the CDC and many doctors, of course, do say the vaccines are safe. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.